Shane. Hi, Sean. So we're back for season two. How do you feel about it? I am super, super excited. Me too. It feels like it's been so long since I've sat with you, had a nice cup of tea. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I think for me, I'm really excited because we've got some really killer films that we're going to talk about in season two. Okay, so this is a quote. I can't believe, I don't think we actually have heard this yet in a film, which amazes me. Those who can't do teach and those who can't teach, teach gym. Oh, yeah. Rude. (laughs) Do you agree with that? No, I don't. But films do really do portray that, don't they? Yeah, what every film... So every music and English teacher we've seen has been the best person ever. And every, like, gym or PE teacher we've seen has been a terrible person. Yeah. And I think uh, some of the future films that we've got coming up uh, really do depict this. They really, really do. So if you've got a film that paints a uh, PE or gym teacher in a positive light... Um, we've got some lined up we've got some lined up we've got we're, one we're there is one and point. I think a lot of people will, will come in with this suggestion but no spoilers at this point yeah yeah okay so the film is School of Rock Woo-hoo. love this film love this film so much it's just such a joy so just starting off with the film then this is a film I think I've seen at least 10 times and every time it is a joy I have to say it's a bit like Sister Act 2 isn't it in that it's just very joyful yeah it's very watchable as well and I think irrespective of whether you come from a teaching background or not everyone's got something that they can relate to in this so there's this guy I don't want to call him a loser loser is a word that's used quite a few times and I really don't like that term I don't think anyone should be called a loser um he's called a loser because he's kind of in his like mid-30s he, he seems to have no real direction he loves music he's in a band but the the band isn't really going anywhere he's living it seems rent-free with his mate who is a substitute teacher Okay. And supposedly a very good teacher, Mr. Schneebly, who has a girlfriend who is presented as very much a Harridan, played by Sarah Silverman, who's sick of this geezer living in a flat, wants him out. He, desperate for money, gets kicked out of his band, picks up a phone call meant for Mr. Schneebly to work at a school, pretends to be him, somehow gets through any checks that they have, which don't yeah. seem to be any. <laughs> Safeguarding was not one of their key priorities back then in nope. 2003. No, clearly. We have to sort of hand wave through that. Manages to successfully impersonate him. Takes up a job at this school. Very quickly decides that actually what he wants to do is get them to just form their own rock band because that's his passion. Doesn't do any maths, doesn't do any English, doesn't do any of the curriculum subjects. Just has rock music all day, every day. Gets them to a really good level and becomes very popular. But also when the parents find out, they are rightly furious with mm. what he's done. Yep. So let's talk about him first. So Dewey Finn... Not a licensed teacher, not a trained teacher. In fact, seems to despise school. Yeah, and has a very typical view on substitute teachers, the negativity around supply teachers. Yeah, I had this question because, okay, so firstly, he seems to have a very good reputation. So it says he's like Mr. the real Mr. Schneebly is known as a great sub, right? Yeah. That's why they call him. He also is employed for $650 a week. Is that good? I couldn't work out. That seems quite decent to me, to be fair. Um, I think against American currency and what I know of how little teachers in general get paid, I think, yes, it is a lot, but also it's a a prep school, isn't it? Because you get reminded a few times that the kids' parents are paying $15,000 a year uh, for for the education. So um, I would assume that it is well paid because of the type of school it is, as opposed to substitute teachers just being paid. Yeah, but then it also, so it becomes clear that he's only a sub because he's not qualified yet. So it kind of presents it as you could only be a sub, a substitute teacher if you're basically not a real teacher. But it seems at least he 
accords respect, right? He's seen as so Dewey really sees him as selling out, right? And like mm-hmm. being a teacher is just like giving it to the man, but also just generally becoming a teacher is very much presented as like giving into mediocrity, normalcy, mm-hmm. not really being creative anymore, mm-hmm. not do, going through your passion, just doing what's practical to pay yeah. bills. But he does seem as a sub to afford quite a lot of respect, which is quite nice because generally I feel like substitute teachers are usually seen as turn up, yeah, do the cover work to a very loose fashion. Yeah. So I have not worked as a substitute teacher, but you have. Yeah. So what was that experience like? Did you feel disrespected like you weren't really seen in the role? Yeah, I, I did two one-day supplies at two different schools and I wanted to quit. The, the student's perception of what a substitute teacher, supply teacher is and their expectations of that teacher is nothing like when you're a established classroom teacher. I remember feeling quite demoralised. I felt quite embarrassed. I, <laughs> I went from being the person that they called to help with behaviour management to the person who seemed seemed like had no control of the class. I remember there, there was this one instance, a member of staff was walking past and because I just couldn't get control of the noise level, which was which is unheard of for me because literally a stern look at a kid who's even whispering, I can get them to be quiet and I just couldn't do it because obviously I wasn't an established member of staff. They didn't know what my rules and expectations were and I had no information given to me as to what the behaviour management would be, um, what the what the policy would be. Do I call on call? Do you have an email? Do you, you know, do you grab a member of staff? What what do you do when, you know, a child needs to be removed from your classroom? And it was one of those things that they just did not have time to tell me, I guess, when you're when you've got members of staff off, you've all you're already on the back foot. I get it from that side of point of view as well. And I guess just a series of unfortunate events, I kind of felt like I understood why supply teachers get such a bad name. So I actually went back to the supply agency and I said I didn't want to do it anymore. To which point they said, before you quit completely, do you want to try a long-term one? So it was for maternity cover. And uh, as as chance would happen, by being that supply teacher for a long term, I was able to go into the school, establish myself um, right from the word go. Um, the the school were very supportive in me not coming across as a supply teacher to the students. So I didn't wear a, a visitor's lanyard. I, I wore the school's lanyard from my first lesson. And the difference it made, despite the fact I was supply, the kids did not know I was supply. And it made so much of a difference. So for Ned to be well-established, recommended from school to school, he must have been doing something sensational, in my opinion. And, you know, there are some amazing supply teachers out there. In general, I feel like it's a downward spiral because you have those negative experiences. It's to Mr. Schneebly's credit that he's really built up this reputation to the fact they're actually calling him, asking for him. He must Mm. be doing something amazing in his lessons. But also I think the school that, this school, uh, when you see him go on his first day... They are so well behaved, I guess, because they're those kind of kids who just behave for a supply, right? So mm-hmm. he doesn't have all those issues I think that you would probably have as a supply teacher mm-hmm. because they just, when he's not doing anything with them, he's literally sitting there, feet on table, refusing to teach them. They're all sitting there calmly waiting for him to engage with them. Yeah. Whereas if you let go of that control in some schools, there'd be pandemonium within about two seconds. Yeah. I think um, it's the type of school again, because if you see how... Roz behaves their teacher. She she does this little bit at 
in the middle where, you know, she says, like, I used to be fun, I used to be these, but I can't be because the parents have such high expectations of me and my school. And she's really tightly wound, isn't she? Mm. Um, So I think she's created an environment where the school, the the students are fearful of teachers. Mm -hmm. So whenever they're in the presence of a teacher, like... They're in the classroom and then she walks in and then they're straight to their seats, right? Mm. So, yeah, given a ch- half a chance, they, they've, they've, they've literally got some kind of fear of senior authority, the kids have. Yeah, it's a very disciplined environment and it, is, it very much presents school as a place where everyone is fearful. The kids are fearful of the teachers, the teachers are fearful of the parents. Right. The parents are very much this kind of controlling force. She seems terrified of the parents and she says that's why she's become such a serious, joyless person is these parents are so serious, so ambitious um, that she doesn't feel like she can really breathe at all. So it just it feels like a really pressured and probably quite a horrible environment. So you can see why someone like Dewey, who's not from within the system or the institution, is able to gain such a great reputation because it must feel so liberating to have someone who's actually like, do you know what? We're not going to do gold stars. That's bullshit. We're going to pull this down. We're going to do something totally different. We're not going to have your usual structure. That could be very stressful actually for kids, right? But you can imagine it would also be very liberating. Like think of the the scene where we don't know why she's telling that little girl off. But she's telling that little girl off and she's she's like, I promise I'll be good. And and she's like, do you want a hug? And as she's like going in, she's like, no. Yeah. And she runs away crying. So there is obviously like some serious, like deep rooted fear factor mm. there. But it's interesting as well, because you see in that scene that it doesn't suit her at all. Like that's not really her personality. And I think... To me, if the school continued as it was continuing to look without him being there, without Dewey being there, I don't think it would work because you can't force that kind of thing. If you are a naturally quite strict and authoritarian person, I think you can pull that off. But it seems like she's very much trying to project this very stern image that actually doesn't really suit her at all. Mm -hmm. So she's miserable. The kids are miserable. It's not working. But to go back to Dewey then, he comes into this quite high-pressured environment where even though it's only, it's a prep school, right? So they are like key stage three, I feel like, is yeah. probably the age. He comes in um, as their whole subject teacher, right? So he's supposed to be teaching them everything. He clocks that they have a music lesson separately and he sees they're actually quite talented kids. He's really into music. So he starts this class project, right? Where they're going to have a rock band and they're going to, he assigns them all roles. What did you think of uh, how he rolls this whole plan out? I think it highlighted how perceptive teachers can be of their students when they pick up their strengths. Because he literally observed them. He doesn't know their names. And we'll come on to some of the inappropriate names that he gives them later on. Um, Well, he tells three of the girls that they're going to be the groupies, which uh, one of them, the one who ends up becoming the manager, is rightly Summer. She's rightly really annoyed about that. She says, I looked it up and they're just the girls that just go around and basically have sex with the men in the band. Like, yeah, that's he, how you perceive us. He came up with those roles over lunch. Like, yeah. all he really only he's wanted was his bass player, lead guitar, drum and keyboards, right? Yeah. He didn't want any well, of the other kids involved until he looked at their faces and said, we're not going to be in the band. You are right. This is definitely someone who didn't have a lesson plan. This is definitely a vibe of we're going to make some of us go along. However, I do feel like he did a good job of assigning all the kids a meaningful role. Also, when they said... Like, I don't want to do that role. So the kid who yeah. wanted to design the costumes, he, he didn't say, no, you're doing it. Yeah. He said, that's fine, yeah, you do costumes. Do you, the girl who approached him... Did you catch what he called him? 
No. Fancy pants. Yeah, there's a blondie, few. brace face, turkey sub, shortstop, roadrunner, carrot top. I just did not learn their names. I picked up that he'd often say things were sissy, which I feel like, in, you know, it's 2003. It was a long time ago. I feel like that wouldn't fly now, mm. right? There's definitely an undertone. And when they're also talking about their own music taste, he's very, he's a very real rockist, isn't he? It's like mm. classic rock or nothing. You like Christina Aguilera or Liza Minnelli, that's a no from me because yeah. it's sissy. Yeah. Um, so in one sense, yes, he very much imposes his taste and his view of what good music is. But in a sense, I do think he does a really good job of recognising the kid's strength, giving them roles that are meaningful to them and trying to get them all involved, much as he's very much uh, improvising, let's say, as he's doing that. Mm. Um, I think it's interesting watching this because it really presents a classroom where there's a much more improvisational style. There's not a sense of like, I'm tracking the learning, I'm tracking their progress. There's no sense of like knowledge-rich curriculum. It's all just, we're going to spitball, we're going to play around, we're going to experiment. It very much presents that as like a great thing, right? And really Mm. positive for the kids. Whereas I feel like if you look at it pedagogically, a lot of the evidence now says that actually this is a lot of wasted time, Mm. right? But actually I was watching and thinking, well, what's wrong with them having a bit of wasted time in school? They're so pressured now sometimes and teachers are also so pressured to get through so much content, content, content. Maybe it would be really liberating to do this for like a few weeks where you could just have a looser project. I don't know. What do you think? I've been teaching. I'm coming. I'm going into my fourteenth, fourteenth year. Damn. I've seen. <laughs> Thanks, Sean. <laughs> Sean is still in his prime. He's only in, uh, going into year three. Uh, why don't you ask him what he's been doing with the rest of his life? <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> that's Doctor Sean. Thank you. <laughs> oh, there we go. <laughs> Slid that in. Um, so yeah, um, I've taught long enough now to to have seen. Um, Activity-based learning coming in, knowledge-based learning coming in, uh, mastery coming in. Um, And I'm of the thought that there is a time and place for everything. For me, the majority of my teaching is chalk and talk. I'm the expert in the room. I'm the person who has, you know, got the knowledge. um, And, you know, I don't think it's done any harm to my students they've gone away they've learned what I've taught them they've sh- they've dem- then gone away and demonstrated that they've learned what I've taught them um so it's not done them any harm however I do know that the kind of subject that I teach if I don't throw in a practical every now and then students lose interest I'm going to say something controversial now and science teachers out there probably will come come at me a lot of practical work for me is a little bit of a waste of time most of the time the students use it as an excuse to mess around now i don't know if that's just my classroom or the way i presented it no Um, no that's every single person in every science practical lesson that's ever existed yeah (laughs) so whilst we're doing the practical they'll be able to recall some of the knowledge they'll be able to tell me why things are happening which is great but if we go somewhere down the line unless i'm doing regular memory recall or rote learning then actually they just remember that we had a piece of carrot that we put in some water. They won't be able to tell me about osmosis. They won't be able to tell me about active transport. They won't be able to tell me about diffusion. Those words won't come to them unless I'm regularly using those words. Now, I'm not regularly going to do that practical with them, right? What's wrong if me presenting it as a theory in the first place? Why do I have to get them to do it for them to understand it? Yeah, I I agree with that. And I do think I'm similar to you, I think, in that ideologically, especially before I started teaching, I very much would have been on the side of 
It's so boring to just regurgitate information. Boring, boring. If you think back to when we looked at Harry Potter, that's how Umbridge is presented, isn't she? She's a textbook-based mm. teacher. They never get to do practicals and all the kids are so bored. And that's how that's often presented. Because the experience of that as a child is often quite boring, isn't it? And yet as teachers, we know that it's more valuable to present knowledge first rather mm. than assume they're going to get it from something they're not really going to remember it from however if you ask me to remember a science lesson the only things i can remember now 20 years later are the practicals right so there was i, I do think there is some value to that outside of the curriculum outside of the knowledge learning for an exam there is some value mm. to them actually having a sensory yeah. experience because they will remember it and it will be memorable and whether or not they can connect that to mm-hmm. a scientific theory or not it's maybe not necessarily the entire point of that i don't think you will have been given this as a tool during your teacher training So when I was teacher training, VAK was massive. I needed to make sure there was something in my lesson for my visual learners, for my audio learners, and for my kinesthetic learners. Oh, yeah, I forgot about all that nonsense that everyone now knows is crap. (laughs) So I I can hear an amen coming across all of EduTwitter right now Mm. because I think we, majority of us, have agreed that that is a load of crap. We don't yeah. need to have those three things in our in our lessons for it to be a good lesson. Yeah, I, I there's a, you can actually age people, I think, by this. Mm-hmm. If you hear people say that they are like a visual learner or something else, they're usually, I think we missed that if we're in our 30s, right? I don't remember being labelled as a visual or whatever else, but kids a bit younger than us, people are now in like their 20s, like mid to late 20s, mm-hmm. they very much had that. So and when I, I first started teaching, yeah. Yeah, exactly, like 10 years ago. Yeah. And now, again, that's gone. So you can almost, it's almost like a tree trunk of the education system. If you're between the age of about, probably about 23 or 29, you probably think of yourself in that way when actually we now know it's mm. all just basically nonsense. Yeah. Which is interesting because that's why, like, whenever we talk about the fact that now knowledge-based is the way forward and it's the only way that's backed by research, but, like, so was visual and all that stuff, yeah. like, 15 years ago, and now we all know that's and it, like, and it will come come in swings around about it. It will come back. Yeah. And we'll be told, oh, we got it wrong when we were trying to get you to do mastery schemes of work. Now it will be, like... Like we need you to do a lot more activity based and yeah. get the kids up and running. Do market? Have you ever done a marketplace uh, activity? No. Where you say to the kids, right around the room are ten different information stations. Oh yes, I have. And that. here is a Waste sheet. Time, mate. Here is a sheet. Time. You need to go and find the information, and you need to fill in the sheet. Oh my god! Like, busyness for the sake of business. It's just like, oh, you get off your phone. You get off the side. You and it's just. Oh. Waste of time. Such a waste of time. But I think coming back to the film, though, would this work as a day-to-day curriculum? No, it's not rich enough in knowledge. However, I think the ultimate conclusion of the film is that it's a fantastic after-school club. It's probably Mm -hmm. the right one, right? That I do think it's important for kids to have that space to explore, be creative, not feel so pressured, not feel like they've got to recur to information Mm -hmm. and... I do think there should be space for that in school. Maybe not even just as after-school clubs. Maybe in some subjects it's more suited. Mm. Something like science, there's so much stuff you've got to remember, right? Same as maths. Yeah. I mean, my science club was pretty much turn up, dump your bags in the other classroom, and let's get some loads of practicals done. And, you know, the idea of them not needing a pen, pencil, or any of their stationery really excited them. And, you know, there was there was some learning done, but you know, it was a very different way. But the risks are lower, like... I know that I'm not going to be judged based on my science club. So I can be a little bit more free and creative. They know they're not going to be examined on my science club. So they can be a lot more 
inquisitive and they can experiment a lot more. The stakes are very low when you're doing it as an extracurricular. And I think that's why some extracurricular seems like they're better than the actual lessons themselves. So then that comes back to the question of have we placed the importance of our lessons and our teaching to be based on this outcome of examinations and grades and places in league tables have we put so much importance on that that we've lost the real meaning of learning yeah completely i guess that goes back to what are we measuring them what what is the point of educating people the point of educating people ultimately is to have i guess a a workforce that has a decent enough working knowledge of basic concepts so they can go into the economy, then I suppose knowledge base is important, right? If you need people who need to read and write at a decent level, numeracy at a decent level, and that is obviously very important. But then what I do think is being crowded out, you're right, is the stuff that actually makes us human, which is being creative, being collaborative, being a bit more imaginative, not feeling so pressured all the time. And because there's no research-based evidence that that is actually important, it just means, well, we don't have space or time for that. But I think you're absolutely right. I think what this film, this film is useful because it shows what can happen if you allow a more disruptive element into the system, right? So someone like Dewey would never, would never become a teacher the normal route Mm -hmm. because he's too unconventional. He's not uh, mainstream enough to really buy into what schools value. And yet 100%, those kids will remember his lessons more than any of the lessons they did. Mm. And will have they will have shaped them so much mm. more, perhaps, than some of the other stuff they'll have learned in more traditional subjects, right? He's given them self-confidence. He's given them friendship groups. He's given them all this stuff that we don't really... You're right, it's not a measured output. So I think this film is valuable for that because it shows the value of bringing someone in outside the system. Because how else would you get someone like this into a classroom? Mm. It just wouldn't happen. And I, I think for me, the, the big thing that I saw that he brought to the classroom is take Lawrence for example he thinks that he is not cool enough to play the keyboard he he's very very skilled at playing the piano like I was blown away because those were their actual skills they, they weren't dubbed over um and he goes up to him and he he feels confident enough to go up to him and say look I don't want to do this I'm not cool enough right and he's Albeit that at the beginning it was probably for ulterior motives so that he could win Battle of the Bands, but he he gives him this confidence boost. And, you know, you see his dad's face when they're at Battle of the Bands and he's just like, oh, holy shit, that is my son out there, right? He does the same for Zach, he does the same for Tamika. These kids, they were good, but they just didn't know they were good, right? And he goes in and he gives them this confidence boost that they then just flourish um, and you see it in that final performance. I actually get goosebumps whenever I see it or hear it. It's a bit similar to, I love it how we come back to Sister Act, but yes. you know when Jamal hits those high notes. Yeah, what hits you more? <laughs> what hits better? Is it Joyful, Joyful at the end of Sister Act 2 or is it their performance at the end of School of Rock? I think they're equal. I think they're on par with each other. Yeah, time. I don't know what I could... When Tamika sings at the end of this film, it does always give me goosebumps a little bit because yeah. you never actually really hear her until that point yeah. do you like properly bow yeah. and sing it is beautiful and her 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 lack of self-confidence her low self-esteem in her figure it's all very um it's all very true of 2003 because you would have been looking at airbrushed figures on magazines as well as the internet creeping through so you know it for her to say you know i, I don't feel comfortable or you know but she she goes up to Dewey doesn't she and she says i want to sing um and he's like come on let me hear it and then she sings and you're like 
lovely. She's 10. She's 10. And yeah, so for me, I, I really, really liked that he bought that aspect. At first, very selfishly, because he wanted the best in his band. But he really wanted them to flourish, didn't he, in the end? And you really got those vibes from him. Yeah, I, I really liked that conversation with Tamika because what he does is it's kind of daring in that he doesn't just sort of placate her with, oh, no, you're beautiful. Oh, no, your weight doesn't matter. He talks about himself and he says, look, I'm overweight, actually, and I, I'm fine. Like, I'm happy with myself. I'm confident. It doesn't really bother me. I could use it if I wanted to. So he becomes that role model that you're right. In 2003, there was no Lizzo. There was no one in the media that would have looked a little bit different. This was like peak skinny blonde girl era, right, in the mid-2000s. Um, and he's very skilled, actually, at that kind of uh, pastoral conversation he does it not only with the kids actually but also with the head teacher as well doesn't yeah. he? he's quite good at gassing people up and making them feel yeah. good about themselves which is a very very nice quality which is what makes him a good teacher I think actually is that he creates this really warm environment um, I feel I feel like you might be a little bit like this I don't know you know I was really surprised when I started teaching how strict I was and how I was much more distant especially initially than I would have expected myself to be because I'd privately tutored for a while and I think my reputation was very much you know I was very chill I were you know kids liked me and got on with me I wasn't strict at all but I very soon realized in the environment I was in that that wasn't going to necessarily I felt anyway it wasn't going to fly that I felt I needed to be much sterner and more closed off and I kind of regret that now actually because I've seen since other teachers come into the school and be very successful at being a bit more open a bit less guarded and actually have had fantastic results from doing that but it requires you to be vulnerable and I think my issue was I didn't want to seem vulnerable to the kids I wanted to seem impenetrable you know especially because some of them could be quite challenging and quite defiant and stuff so i think i very much built a wall up which i do regret now i think and going into my third year of teaching now i'm gonna try and be less guarded i think because you see the value of that don't you that i don't know if a kid would have felt comfortable enough to me to come and have that conversation that tamika has with him for example about her weight um and i think it's important as a teacher that you are there for that it's not just about your subject i really don't believe that at mm. all um and that's what the the film puts forward i think um so we talked about him a little bit um, what about going into the staff room? What other teachers doing me? I mean, we never actually see Schneebly teach apart from to the, the real Schneebly until the very end where he's with the really little kids doing yeah. their... But he also seems very positive, lots of praise and stuff. Uh, and we never, other than um, the conversation in her office, we never see Miss Mullins really interact with the kids either. She seems like a very... She seems like one of those head teachers who's kind of feared but never really around. Or when she is around, you know, the kids are all very guarded. Um. No, there was that scene where they had to they had to come up with a whole ruse, didn't they, where um they set up the security cameras for whenever she's walking down the hallway. Yes. So she, she I, I think she does do the walks around, but more of a, a micromanaging kind of I'm going to I mean she she comes in and does a impromptu um a lesson, what what are those things called? They're not called a learning walk. And yes. she drops in in those lessons and she's like, I think I'm going to stay and watch you uh, <laughs> um, implement this method that you speak of. And, you know, have you ever been put on the spot like that? Um, yeah, in my last school, they would have drop-ins quite a lot. I, I have never, ever got stressed about observations because I just feel like, wow, I, I just see it as an opportunity for good feedback. I refuse to get stressed out. Yeah. about that I, I'm very much of the same school of thought with you on that um they they don't they don't make me nervous anymore they did um only because a lot of the times I feel like there's a certain expectation that people think 
that my lessons should be like. I don't think people realise that I chalk and talk as much as I do. I think they think that I do a lot of activities and do a lot of fun things. I'm doing inverted commas for our listeners there. Um, She's not fun, people. It's all a lie. I'm not fun. I'm not fun for most parts. Every so often I'll do an activity that is amazing like when I did my t-shirts and the kids made body parts onto this t-shirt that they could wear um or when I did my Harry Potter lesson or when you know I made planets but literally those are things that I would do to tie up the end of a topic or in the run-up to like Christmas as opposed to watching a video let's make paper mache solar systems you know still a little bit of learning there um and I'm not falling into the trap of regularly putting a video in front of the kids right because that expectation Mm -hmm. then comes from the kids back on you Mm -hmm. but when you do those activities I think people's expectation or in their mind they build up a teacher who's constantly doing activity-based learning and so I think I do get a lot of people be surprised that I am literally stood at the front with my board with my whiteboard pen talking through theories and you know then doing exam practice questions or doing you know some kind of application questioning so I think I've had people come back to me and say oh I wasn't expecting a lesson like that I've become comfortable with that feedback because that's how I am at first I wasn't comfortable so learning walks and sudden drops would make me feel nervous because it would be like right they're about to find out (laughs) that are not those things and that imposter syndrome would come through like that judgment is now going to put me in a place where they're not going to rate me as a good teacher anymore but what's so interesting about that is like what you're saying is your image i guess is that you are seen as unconventional right and a bit like the way that Dewey is and that he doesn't teach in the way you're supposed to teach and actually what you are doing is teaching how you're supposed to teach and you feel like in this weird way that means that you're not doing what you should be doing because your reputation is that you're not like normal teachers it's such a bizarre and I think the more that I've taught I mean I've only been teaching much less longer than you the more I realised at the beginning I very much wanted to be you know the teacher who's seen as creative. And I think that's the key thing. It's being seen as creative, isn't it? That becomes important. It's much more about your ego than what's actually occurring in the lesson. Mm-hmm. And you very soon realise that a lot of that stuff is is like low-key, a bit of a waste of time. Mm-hmm. And actually, especially in literature for me, because I guess we're a bit different. For me, the thing that works best is just discussing and yeah. getting the, the kids to feel comfortable discussing their ideas, bouncing off each other, digging deeper into their ideas rather than me doing some big fancy activity that's going to take a lot of prep time that looks really amazing if you're being observed but actually didn't really do a yeah. lot yeah and um, you start to realize actually a lot of that is just fireworks and fluff you mm. know um so i think it's good that you have confidence in that mate i do but i guess this film maybe contributes to the idea a little bit that the truly great teachers are like these kind of like entertainers almost, mm. right? Performers. Yeah, performers, which I do think you need a little bit of an element of that, yeah. right? You've got to be able to act a little bit. You've got to be able to perform a little bit. But uh, it's not maybe not the most necessarily the most helpful idea because I think what he does actually best really is engages with the kids as human beings mm. and really recognises their personhood and their individuality and respects mm. them actually. Mm. So much as he has this whole thing of like, uh, this is not a... Um, this is not a democracy you must follow what I think, et cetera, et cetera. When they come to him with good ideas, he immediately is like, yes, we'll do that. You've got a song that's better than mine. Great. We're all going to sing it, right? He, his ego is actually not as big as he tries to make out. Um, and that's what I think is a true strength. Not that he's like super entertaining. It's that he just gives them the space to actually express themselves, which is mm. what I guess is needed. Yeah. But going um, back to Miss Mullins, I think when she was a teacher, I think she would have been 
the teacher who's always got an activity on the go, the kids always moving, hands are always flying up and, you know, for volunteers to do X, Y, Z demonstration. I can see that she was, she was probably very much that kind of teacher because um, she's, she's clearly that's her expectation of Dewey. Um, who she thinks is Ned at the time. Um, yeah, and to go back to what you said about her observing him, although we're saying, oh, you shouldn't really stress it, you know, what have we got to hide? She very much uses that as an intimidation tactic, doesn't she? She's yeah. like, oh, you... So she has a complaint from another teacher about all the music being played in the lessons. So she comes in and says, well, I want to see this method then. What's yeah. this great? And clearly with the view of what you're doing isn't the thing you should be doing, right? Can, I, can, I, can we also touch upon the fact how shitty it is that another teacher's gone straight to the head teacher and said, oh, mate. I don't think he's doing what he's meant to be doing. Do you Do, know? Does that surprise you? Teachers are narcs, low-key teachers are narcs. <laughs> well, it depends. It, do, it depends, to be fair. That's not fair. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it to a colleague. And I would hope that a colleague wouldn't do it to me. I think my 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 hope would be that if they've seen me do something that they think goes against school policy or not quite right, I'd like them to have a conversation with me. Um, and then we can explore this idea that whether I'm doing it right or wrong. Mm. <laughs> the only time I've ever, I've never gone to a head teacher or a senior member of staff. The only time I ever questioned something a teacher was doing was there was this kid who I will not name, obviously, who was really badly behaved and had a lot of issues. He used to throw chairs in my lessons. He was very aggressive, very poorly behaved. Used to, the other kids in his class were terrified of him. And yet he got an award for the most like achievement points in the school. And I saw it and I was like, hold on a second. This kid has the most achievement points and he literally bullies other kids, throws chairs at teachers, is awfully behaved. How is this possible? So I looked at his data and one teacher was giving him like five achievement points every single day. So I just emailed Pastor, like, I just wanted to query this because all the kids were talking about it saying, how has this kid mm. got the award for the most gym points when he's literally the worst behaved kid in our year? I don't think that's terrible because it gave him this view of, oh, so if you're naughty then, it actually means nothing, which was definitely a problem in the school I was working in. Um, because they, anyway. Um, so I just questioned why this kid was getting so many gym points because I thought that was a fair question. So I, I couldn't believe no one had asked this question because I was thinking like, do they not teach this kid? Do they not know this kid? Like he definitely does not deserve this award based on how he behaves. And yet it was because one teacher, presumably done it as a tactic, I don't know, to motivate him or something else. But it, I don't know, it seemed unfair to me. But I didn't, I didn't send it to the head teacher or anything. I didn't grasp it up. I just queried like, I just wanted to check what's going on here. Yeah, that, that's definitely different to to what what's happened here to Dewey, where outrightly a teacher has gone behind his back and said, he's not doing what he's meant to be doing. Um, and you're right, the, that that particular incident, we could, we could talk a lot about this whole a, a reward system and how actually sometimes when people use it as a carrot for naughty kids, it devalues it for the good kids. Mm -hmm. But... Essentially, if you look at it from the other side, when a good kid gets so many, the naughty kids give up because they know that they'll never be as good. And it's a double-edged sword. It's and, hard. You know, some, I've had some conversations recently with a member of staff in my last school who said, I don't even believe in our reward system. I've never handed out an achievement point in, in my entire time here. Um, and he said he talked about all the flaws in it. And when he talked about it, I, I kind of 
sat up and listened because I've always been a massive fan of rewarding students and whether it's for whether it's the good ones who I'm regularly rewarding or for a naughty one who's literally had one of the best lessons that they could ever produce um so I'm a, I'm a little bit on the fence after having that conversation because I do see that actually could be a little bit of both yeah, it's. It, I think it's always going to be forward because it kind of gamifies human behaviour, doesn't it? And it creates this weird, I guess, almost like bartering system sometimes with the kids mm. of like, you don't want to get this level or do you not want this thing? When actually it's probably better to have that as just a meaningful interaction without that system needing to be in place. You know, in real life, mm. you don't do something nice to someone and get an achievement point, right? You get the reward of their friendship or their approval or something else. You know, mm. it's a kind of a dehumanization, I guess, of human interaction. So I could definitely see that point. But what I did notice, did you notice, when he first comes in, the first thing he does, or one of the first things he does in the classroom, is tear down the chart of yeah. gold stars, right? He's so horrified. He's like, what kind of school is this? This is so appalling. The gold star system and the demerits as well, the black dot they get, which I do think is bad that that should never be public. I think the gold star is public fine. The black dot should not be public, personally. Yeah. But then... <laughs> What's hilarious is to go back and use it to use it in his favor to help with the whole situation. With yes. Summer is like fifty gold stars for yes, you. Yes, I was going to say. And he, he, she's like, I thought you didn't believe in gold stars and rewards and merits and demerits. And he was like, I was testing you there back because he realizes what a good bartering tool it is to get yourself out of trouble as a teacher, right? Exactly. If you do not do this, you will get this as a sanction. But if you do this, you will get this as a reward. Yeah, I think this is genuinely one of the most, in all the things you watch, one of the most relatable moments of a teacher teaching in that when I came in, I think I probably saw myself as being a bit like this guy, you know, I don't believe in all this crap. Kids shouldn't have to have gold stars. Kids shouldn't have to have all this, blah, blah, blah. But then as soon as he actually decides he's going to be a teacher, right? So once he makes a decision of, oh, I've got a project I really want the kids to do, the first thing he does is reinstitute merits, right? Because the kids who want to do it, great, but someone like someone who's a bit more cynical, he needs that buy-in from her of, well, here's now you're going to be your reward. You value gold stars, therefore I'm going to use gold stars for you, right? So he immediately actually intuitively realises that that stuff can work, right? So it's kind of like you can resist the system all you want, but as soon as you actually get a buy-in to the system of teaching, you kind of realise the value of these things. There's a reason why they're there in almost every school, right? Miss Mullins, she asks a very, you know, when she says to him, there's a question I've been dying to ask you since you started. So she says, how does Horace Green prep school compare to other schools that you worked at? Uh, yeah. And I feel like this is such a head teacher question to ask. Like, this is my institute. This is what I've built. And I want to know how much it compares to other places like yeah and what he realizes again showing he's actually quite an emotionally intelligent person is what she's really asking for here is can you please reflect back my own values to me so he says oh it's great because it's the most disciplined strictest school i've ever taught in which is what he knows she wants to hear that's what she values and of yeah. course we know he doesn't value that whatsoever and he hates the culture of the school and it doesn't really coincide with his own personal values at all do you think he would have because he's obviously like building up to asking about taking the kids out of school to go to battle of the bands do you think his response would have been different if he didn't want to get that out of the end of the conversation. Maybe this sounds cynical. I personally believe that if leaders ask you questions like this, you should just pay lip service unless you can trust that they actually want honesty from you. Because okay. I actually don't think 
most leaders, I'm being generalistic here, would want honest answers from staff who are not leaders. I think they would just want you to pay lip service. So I wouldn't even waste my time or, you know, possibly risk being labelled as like, you know, cynical or a troublemaker. I'd just tell them what they wanted to hear. That's really interesting. Um, Having been a leader and experienced many honest truths from staff who aren't leaders, it's opened up some interesting dialogues. It's especially like when I was a leader and a member of staff would complain about something um, or bring something to my, my attention, I guess is probably a better way of saying it. I found it an opportunity to open lines of communication because I feel like quite often if someone feels that they need to pay lip service to you as opposed to talk the truth to you, it's because they don't understand the narrative on the other side. And when you open those lines of communication and you're honest with each other, then actually a bigger and better and clear picture is built and a better line of understanding is had. Um, oh, absolutely. Ultimately, she's not a great leader because if she was a good leader, he would have thought he could be honest with her, mm. which is that he feels the school's too strict, mm. too stringent, uh, too stifling. Because she clearly actually doesn't really want his opinion. She wants to have her ego stroked, right? Mm. She makes that quite clear. But then he he does a really good job of trying to get her to loosen up because, you know, he, just before the parents' evening, which we'll talk about in a moment, um, just before the parents' evening, she, you know, she's like all wound up. She's all stressed. And despite the fact that he doesn't want to go, he, he, he brings her some calm and she even says, you know, I get really nervous around the parents, but there's something about you that makes me feel calm. Um, so he he does try and tell her you you need to loosen up a little bit here, um, but at the same time he doesn't give her the whole truth, which for me as a leader is so important. Mm. Um, I would want people to be honest with me, yeah, and I would want to be honest back with them. So just going into the school then, would you work at the school? Um, no. Why not? Uh, I think for me, there, there seems to be a lot of fear factor mm-hmm. um, from the management to the staff, from the staff to the kids. Um, it doesn't seem like a community or an environment that would be open to my kind of teaching and my my views. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, though, in that it the I guess the real villains of the film, if you like, it's actually not the principal, it is the parents. It mm-hmm. seems like it's the parents who the, the kids are kind of afraid of and the teachers are afraid of. Mm-hmm. And their kind of middle class aspiring ambitiousness is what is really limiting the school, both in terms of um, the pedagogy, in terms of what the kids feel they can achieve, what they value. Mm-hmm. It very much presents it as the parents are the problem, right? And they're the thing that needs to be changed. So by the end of the film, they've realised the value of the kids being a bit looser. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I would agree with you. Having only had one or two negative interactions with a parent, you can't underestimate how stressful that can be, actually, mm-hmm. and how easy it is for a parent to make a teacher's life difficult if they really want to. Yeah. And this seems like that kind of school where that happens a lot. Yeah. I think the the whole parent relationship is a little bit unknown because you tend to know your colleagues quite well because you see them every single day. You tend to understand and learn about your students once you've seen them a few times and, and taught them for a, a period of time. Parents are completely unknowns because a lot of the time those interactions are over the phone so you don't know who you're talking to in terms of what they look like. Um, and that can play a lot of part, a big part because body language we, we, we've become very good at reading body language. So interactions with parents over the phone, incredibly stressful. Completely agree with you, um, if, especially if it's not going in the right direction. Um, and tone of voice 
quite often doesn't get conveyed very well. What about emails from parents? I've actually never had a negative email. I've had negative phone calls. I've not had a negative email. I've had negative emails and then... I don't like to communicate via emails. I feel like emails always... uh, I've realised this in previous jobs. If you ever feel angry about something and you email someone about it, it's always so much worse than having a conversation because it sounds worse. It sounds more formal and it sounds more serious. Miss Mullins' leadership is reflected when they're talking about her in the staff room um, and they don't seem to have anything nice to say about her except for the time that she got drunk and then she did the Stevie Nicks impression and she was dancing on the table. Um, and that that's also quite sad and it reminded me that leadership is quite a lonely place and you get that when she when she's in the van when he's driven her back and he she says that um no one's ever invited her out outside of school in six years and you know when you dedicate your life to an entire cause and you know you get the idea that she feels unappreciated and like unliked um disliked sorry disliked and it's quite sad uh, because at the end of the day, people in leadership, they're humans as well. They they, yeah, they crave social interactions. and Yeah, of course. I mean, partly it flags up you should probably have, you know, something going on outside of work. Just saying. <laughs> like, she should probably have something. Because I do, I feel a bit torn about that in the one sense, I think, if you're a leader, you're kind of, you're no longer your colleague's friends to a yeah. certain degree. You kind of have to have all conversations or mm. do other stuff. So if they don't want to include you in stuff, and that's actually fine, you know, if they don't feel they can necessarily just be complete themselves around you and they want to just socialise without you. I think that's all right. You can foster that and you can certainly, you know, interact with them. I don't know. It's difficult because yeah. my ideal would be if I was a leader would be that I'd want like to be seen as the friend of the people that, you know. You see, like uh, my, my last head teacher, he was, and you know, from previous conversations, someone who I really rate and he he had emotional intelligence. Everyone got on with him when he was announced from acting head teacher to permanent head teacher. Everyone was so happy and that there was like a sigh of relief at the thought that no one else was going to come in from outside to be this head teacher. But as a rule, never interacted or went to social occasions outside of school. And I guess it for for him it was a this this idea that you cannot stay impartial if anything was to happen at one of these events or incidents and you know because you were actually also involved um, and it's harder to turn a blind eye if you see something. I had a head of science once that um, purposefully wouldn't sit with us at lunch because. He, in his opinion and view, there needed to be an outlet where people were allowed to to rant and to vent without him being there. I think that's very healthy. I think people need to be able to vent and to rant. Sometimes mm. you say things because it's your workplace, you want to bitch about this and that. Mm. That doesn't necessarily need to be heard by a leader. It doesn't need to be taken any further. That's completely human. I agree with that. And I also think there's something to be said for... You know, some people like to socialise outside of work. You're a very sociable person. Yeah, I get FOMO. Which yeah. Is, which is why I could never be that leader. So when I was head of science, uh, I would sit with them all and have lunch because I went from being the person who was at the table with them. I couldn't then take myself away. I would get FOMO. Yeah, and that's fine. It's what works for you. It's what comes organically to you, isn't it? Because 
um, like the team I've just worked in, we did socialize outside of work. We all got on well. I consider some of them like good friends of mine. Mm. Um, and that's nice. But sometimes people just want to go to work and be on their own outside of work. And I think that's actually fine. Like there's nothing wrong with that. I never take offense to that. If someone doesn't want to interact with me outside of work, because ultimately we're there to be paid. They don't need to interact with me outside of work or anybody else. They're not enti- no one's entitled to that time. Do you know what I mean? So I think it's really what works best for you. What the problem here is that she's obviously unhappy, right? And she obviously does, like you say, have FOMO. She wants to be involved. She feels lonely, but she's creating this culture for herself right by being so distant by insisting on this culture that doesn't really come naturally to her she's boxed herself in so that she doesn't really seem human to the people that work Mm. for her anymore and that is fine if that's what she wants but it's not what she wants this is Mm. the issue i think which is why i think the school was doomed to failure at some point had it continued the way it was um the thing i did want to kind of flag up is that so in this film he throws out the entire curriculum he doesn't do any maths he doesn't do any english he doesn't do anything other than studying rock music so although it's not just band practice they learn about the history of rock music they do music theory they do all stuff, but it's all based around this do you think this is a good idea <laughs> no i think a broad uh a broad curriculum is essential like those kids will grow up just to be musicians and if we had schools like that, it would be difficult because you would get scientist parents sending their kids just to... And I, there was a time when there were like science colleges and business and enterprise colleges, but they still had to deliver a broad curriculum. They couldn't just deliver those specialisms. Yeah. Well, um, I'm about to go to a school where kids audition and they do singing, dancing, acting for like 16 hours a week. Right. Okay, but they still do maths. But they still do maths, English, science. Yeah. So although that idea is obviously not great, it did. It kind of throws it to me. What is it that we do value? What so in maths and science, you know, there's a basic, broad sense of not like agreed upon knowledge that they need, right, to understand the world around them or to understand numeracy. But it becomes a bit murky, I guess, when you're looking at like English history, the subjects that I teach, because there is a lot of debate around, well, why do we always study Charles Dickens and Shakespeare? Why is that the most valued thing? Why do we always look at this aspect of history and not other aspects of history? Because then it's much more about what the culture has decided is important or not important, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's what it flags up, much as obviously it's a ridiculous idea to just teach them about, you know, classic mm-hmm. rock or whatever. It does flag up that actually it's no less impartial, really, to say you have to read Shakespeare if you're at a British school. Right. I mean, I love Shakespeare. I think Shakespeare is amazing, but that's absolutely a biased judgment that's been made. Right. That is just based on the idea that this is the best thing for them to read. Um, I think um, I think people who write curriculums, schemes of work or specifications, it, it's a tough job because there is so much knowledge out in the world. Um, and we've only got a limited amount of time teaching science with the amount of content that we have to get through. It's impossible to get through in just year 10 and 11 that we, we now start delivering it in year nine. Most schools that I know will start a three year science curriculum. Um, it's a tricky one. Um, I, I most certainly don't agree with having just one specialism and sticking to it. What, what he did was for me ethically wrong because those kids so, no, oh, what was it when um, when he said we're going to do a project and Lawrence says science project and you know clearly this kid likes science right but now he only likes music so where have you given him the opportunity to explore both parallel to each other and come to a conclusion 
for himself. What you've now done is you've taken away his options and you've only left him with one choice. And this is, um, there is a massive debate at the moment on, and I've just said that the science curriculum is um, a three-year curriculum for most schools, but a lot of schools um, have debated whether they start their entire GCSE curriculums in year nine and do a three-year curriculum um, that way. And a lot of people are against it. How do you, at the age of 13, decide what your options are going to be and narrow your curriculum choices down? You need that extra year to to explore further, to know whether... With science, it's easy because you have to do science whether you do it in year nine or whether you do it in year 10. Same with maths and English. So I think the core subjects get away with doing it for three years. Um, But certainly for for the option subjects, you by taking it away at the beginning of year nine you're reducing the uh, you know the the exploration of whether you really do want to study history over geography or you know you might learn something in geography in year nine that actually changes your mind and you pick that one yeah and i think there's even you know kids develop so fast during adolescence there's a big difference i think between a 13 year old and a 14 year old even Absolutely. you know you have a much better sense of self even just in those 12 months and even in a level i i i think and I know the reason why we only let students pick only three subjects because there's just so much content to get through but I I, I don't think three subjects is enough I'd love to have gone into a lot more detail in the history subjects or in um, a little bit more on business and IT those things in A level but I, I was limited to the number of subjects I could pick yeah and I guess it flags up that we are also very limited in schools. We can only ever really give an introduction to something, right? And hope that that then sprouts a further interest as a degree or outside of school mm-hmm. or something else, right? Um, I also think his choice to do this is interesting in a sense in that it, it shows us that he's not idealised, really. He has, he has some really good qualities, but also what he does is really irresponsible. Yeah. Um, I mean, he has, he's had no formal training. He doesn't know about pedagogy. He doesn't know about the depth and breadth of a curriculum, right? No, but I don't think we can excuse him because he also knows what he's doing is really just because he's interested in it, right? So you can't even really argue he's going for what the kids find interesting because what 12-year-olds listen to classic rock music, they don't, when you ask them what their favourite bands are, None of them are the bands that he's interested in teaching them, right? Which no, is he's why not respectful of that, those choices, are. No, it? not at all. I, I think it's it's it does flag up in an interesting way. I think the idea that uh, ultimately, I think to a certain degree, everything we're teaching, certainly in humanities and in the arts, is ultimately what adults have decided is good or important. Hmm. He just does that in a more exaggerated way. I think. Okay, so Ofsted inspection. If we were going into the school. Let's think of it in two ways. We'll go into Dewey's lesson first. We're seeing this lesson as Ofsted inspectors. What we write in the school. Okay, Dewey as a teacher, I would say he is requires improvement because his curriculum is not very broad. Um, he's got good subject knowledge, and he does get some things out of the students. There are there is some progress being made. Um, so there are good features, but I think on the whole, it requires improvement. Yeah, great classroom environment. I guess this is also shows the artifice of this, which is that we know if we did go in, he'd do what he did for the head, which is do a fake pretend lesson, right? Mm. And he probably wouldn't show us what he's really doing. Mm. Um, but he's definitely got good engagement. 
Um, I suppose also the artifice of Ofsted, I believe, is that they'd only probably see one or two lessons from him, right? Mm-hmm. So they probably wouldn't even get to see what the broad curriculum is. But we mm-hmm. know they'll probably ask questions. And as we saw from the parents' evening, he would not be able to answer those questions very yeah. adequately at Absolutely. all. So I think you're right, it requires improvement. What about the whole school then? If we were just special measures, him? safeguarding wow. was not safeguarding was Shots not were fired. <laughs> I'm sorry, that straight away it took. It took Ned to get a check that he didn't recognise and then his girlfriend to actually flag it up to the police for them to actually... like He even tried to tell the head teacher, I'm a fraud. And she's sitting there thinking, oh, he's just got a bit of imposter syndrome, right? Yeah. So I mean... she didn't even listen to him when he tried to say, I am not actually a teacher. And she's like, oh, a substitute is a teacher. So she's gone down the, the road of, you know... You know, supply teachers have a bit of a low self-esteem, low confidence. I just need to push him up a little bit. He's up, like, I write this saying, I'm not a teacher. Safeguarding was not maintained. No, I mean, we see his after-school club, but it's not quite clear if it's part of the school because I definitely feel like she would have had to have left that job after that incident. Yeah. Whether or not the parents were happy with what the kids did, which obviously they were, the the way the many ways in which that could have gone wrong the fact that I mean that amazing scene where he says that he's touched the kids and the kids have touched him <laughs> and then realizes what he said but that possibly could have happened he was just some random man from the street who managed Absolutely. to blag his way into I mean, the, the kids get on a, a a bus tell the bus driver oh we're meeting our teacher at his house they go into his house drag him out of bed like there are so many red flags in in that little scene alone. And I just think, do you know what? No, safeguarding has completely been ignored here. If we're going to say, you know, Horace Green, what kind of school is it? The fact that, you know, this teacher was able to turn up and say, I am Nechenibli, I am a teacher. You know, for me, she did nothing to check it, that he was who he said he was. And the series of events that led to it afterwards, the kids just going missing, she walks into the room and she's just like, she's so beside herself that she says it with a smile on her face and she just throws her arms up going, they're missing. <laughs> yes, I love, that's my, my favourite part in the whole film is when she's like, well, all your children are missing. And the way she says it is so funny because she just knows her career is done. There's nothing she can do now. She's completely fell. I guess there's a weird freedom in those kind of moments in life, isn't there? Where you're like, well... I've completely fucked up here and there's just no way I'm going to get out of it. Mm-hmm. There's what can I do? 100%. Um, in a way, I wonder if she almost feels released because it really feels like she's not enjoying the job or the school mm-hmm. at all. So she knows at this point, surely it cannot go any further, right? Um, so I think you're right. I think just for the, this whole incident, whether or not it turned out fine in the end, it would have to be special measures, right? Yeah. Come on. Right. Thank you so much for listening to us. Um, please do find us on Instagram at Film Class Pod and Twitter at the same handle. DM us on either of those platforms. Let us know what you thought of the episode. Please rate and review us if you're listening to us on iTunes. And also you can send us an email at filmclasspod at gmail.com. Let us know what you thought. And also give us some suggestions. We've already had some really good suggestions from the last season of films we're going to do this season, but we'd love suggestions for next season as well. All right, thanks. Take care, bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to us today. Follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at Film Class Pod and also on Instagram on the same handle. Also, you can send us an email at filmclasspod at gmail.com. Send us over any comments, any suggestions. Thank you so much as well to Kevin McLeod for our music, Night in Venice. You can find all of Kevin's work in Compatech.filmmusic.io and the license is at Creative Commons. 
See you next week. See ya.